Father, it is with great joy that we bring to you a portion of what you have provided, a small bit of the faithfulness, of your faithfulness shown to us. We ask that you would take these offerings, Lord, multiply them, use them for your glory, extend your kingdom, glorify your Son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And please remain standing for the reading of the scriptures. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, the second chapter. We're going to be reading verses 8 through 20. Probably a story that you've read in the last month or so uh, during the Christmas season. Let's give careful attention to God's word as it is read from the Gospel of Luke, the second chapter. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, your word which is truth, and who has called, to, called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray that you would sweeten this word in our hearts, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, that we might honor you more along the path, praying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, my sermon text this morning is just one verse, and that's verse 14. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. For about the last year, I have been using in my morning devotions a small book called Faith Alone. And as the title might indicate, it has something to do with Martin Luther. Somebody's actually gone back and taken small snippets out of various sermons and writings by Martin Luther. It's kind of like Spurgeon's morning and evening. Instead of morning and evening, it's just one per day, and I use it in the morning. And um, on January 14th, the text that was part of the devotional was that 14th verse. 
And I was struck when Luther said two things. He was talking about the angels and how the angels joyfully sing about the honor of God and how the angels love people as great friends. In this short song, Luther says, we have the angels singing to the glory of God and loving people as great friends. Now, for a number of years, I have been saying in a, in a variety of contexts that I think there's a misunderstanding afloat in the church, at least in the United States. And we find what I think to be that misunderstanding in a phrase that's often used by worship leaders, elders, pastors, at the beginning of services or in the middle of sermons. And the phrase is, it's not about you. And um, so I've been making comments about how I think this is a little bit off target. And I must admit, I get pushback after I say these kinds of things in the pulpit. Um, But I think I'm right. And I'm growing even more convinced that that I'm right. And I, I think I know why people say it's not about you. It's because in our culture, we can so easily become self-absorbed and think that we are the center of all things. But you know, when, when the pendulum is out here, that's not good. But when it swings to the opposite side and we get another imbalance, that's not healthy either. And I believe that if we look into the scriptures on all sorts of issues, the scriptures just provide us with such a wonderful balance. And I was struck when reflecting on Luke 2, 13 through 14 out of Luther's devotional. I was struck by this same concept once again, and I thought, you know, I might just preach on this text sometime. Now, I know you're all surprised because this is in the other testament, But uh, be patient with me. I I do actually read the other testament from time to time. And then Mike invited me to preach. And I thought, well, maybe I'll preach this the next time I drive down to Vero. And then when Mike said that it was Communion Sunday, I began to reflect on this text and on this concept that it's not about you in connection with the Lord's Supper. And it all started to come together in my head. And so, let's go. Well, this is a pretty straightforward, simple sermon. I, I, I just have two points. And uh, I think they come right out of this nice little Hebraic, angelic song. My first point, I could put it one of two different ways. One way I could put my first point is glory to God. Another way I could put my first point is to say, it's about God. What I want to do is just kind of walk our way through this nice short text, kind of phrase by phrase. So the first part of the first point, glory to God, let's just talk for a moment about that word glory. Now keep in mind that although we're reading the New Testament, at least most of us this morning in English, The New Testament was written in Greek, 
But the people who wrote the New Testament in Greek were first century Jews, and their mother language was Hebrew, and their culture was Hebrew. And so when, when they use this Greek word for glory, what's really lying behind it is the Old Testament. See, you've got to have the Old Testament come in here. What, what really is lying behind it is the Old Testament word for glory. And this is a rich word. I don't think we have a single English word that captures the sense of Hebrew glory. Here are the three parts of the Hebrew concept of glory. First of all, glory is one's accomplishments. Hebrew uses the word glory for what one accomplishes. Uh, For example, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, but notice how it goes on, the firmament displays his handiwork. Notice the correspondences, heavens, firmament, declare, display, glory, handiwork. What is the glory of God in Psalm 19.1? It's what God has accomplished. In particular, it's what God has accomplished in creation. The creation is God's glory. God's glory is what he has accomplished. But in addition to that, it's one's personal dignity based on those accomplishments. Because God has created a glorious creation... He has a certain dignity about him that the Hebrew Bible calls his glory. Psalm 29 is a beautiful creation hymn. I guess this kind of is really from the Old Testament, isn't it? (laughs) Psalm 29 is a beautiful creation hymn, and it um, it celebrates a wonderful thunderstorm that God has created. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders. See, because of what God has accomplished, he is a God of glory. Glory is not only what God accomplishes, it's, I know this is strange, we don't normally think of God thinking about himself, but it's God's own sense of dignity that is connected to what he has accomplished. And in the third place, glory is one's honor in the community. When people accomplish great things, what do we do? We honor them. And so glory is also the honor that the community gives to one connected to their own dignity and based on their accomplishments. Look at Isaiah 24, 15. Isaiah chapter 24 and verse 15. Therefore, in the east, notice the verb, give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the God of Israel in the islands of the sea. Give glory to God in the east. The sea is in the west. Everywhere, notice, give glory to God. So when the angels start by singing glory, 
they're really Hebraic angels. The, the hymn that they're singing is a very Hebraic hymn. And it's coming out of this rich Old Testament background. When they say glory, they're thinking of all that God has accomplished in creation. But in particular, remember, this is a song that they are singing at the birth of Christ. They're now singing of what God is accomplishing in redemption in sending Jesus as the Messiah to be the Savior of the world. And they're saying what God has accomplished is part of who God is as a God of glory, and it's the reason for us as the community of angels giving glory to God. You see, this song is very much about God and God's glory. Now, Our text says something like glory to God, but following the order of the poem in the original, it really says glory in the highest. That's the next phrase, glory in the highest. And this doesn't mean like the highest glory. Highest here, notice, contrasts with earth. Glory is coupled with peace. In the highest is coupled with on earth. And so in the highest is a way of referring to heaven, but not simply heaven as a place. It's the highest in the sense that this is where the angels themselves live. When it says give glory to God, the addressees are the angels. The angels in heaven are, are being called upon to glorify God for what he is about to accomplish in redemption. The hymn is talking to the angels, just like we did when we sang the doxology. We might not stop and think about it, but that's what we're doing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above you, heavenly hosts. See, we're talking to the angels with good biblical precedent. Back to Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, And those sons of the mighty are, it's going to be translated various ways in your Bible, but they refer to angels. Uh, Ascribe to the Lord, O angelic host, ascribe to the Lord glory. Old Testament, New Testament, Christian tradition, calling upon the, the angels in heaven to give glory to God because of what he's accomplished in creation and what he is accomplishing in redemption. Glory in the highest to God. And we have to notice that the first part of this song is about God. God gets first position. If we were speaking musically, he's first chair. God is the first. And what the angels are teaching us here is that God is the one who gets the ultimate glory. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. Or my praise to idols. To give any of the glory that is due to God. Because of who he is. 
And because of what he has accomplished in creation and in redemption, that, says Isaiah, is idolatry. There is a glory that belongs to God and to God alone, and that is what the angels are singing at the birth of Christ. Glory to God in the highest. God is the one who gets the ultimate glory. Let's look at another text. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 27. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 27. I'll just read a short story that we've probably heard before about Eli. Now, a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor, now the Hebrew word underlying this word honor is the word glorify. It's the same word that is used in Isaiah, I will not give my glory to another. Why do you glorify your sons, notice, more than me? By fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people. God says, I will not give my glory to another. That's idolatry. That honor, that worthiness, that praise for who I am and for what I have done in creation, what I'm doing in redemption, that belongs to me and to me alone and I will not share it with another. And you are glorifying your sons more than me. God was not pleased when that role, that relationship was reversed. But notice how the text goes on. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, those who honor me, I will honor. It's our word glorify. Those who glorify me, Those who see that I am the one who gets the ultimate glory for what I have accomplished in creation and redemption, what will I do? Those who glorify me, I will glorify. See, there is, we're starting to make our transition to the next point. There is a glory that is appropriate to human beings. Makes sense because we've been created in the image of a glorious God. But we must always remember that it is God who gets the ultimate glory. Just think of the one commandment. In our English translations, it's always an H word. What are you supposed to do to mother and father? Honor. Well, we could just translate that word glorify. Glorify your mother and father because of who they are as image bearers of God, the fact that they are in an analogous role that I got them in as the one in authority uh, over the family, 
glorify your mother and your father. There is a glory that is appropriate to human beings, just not the ultimate glory. And these kinds of things, at times, we struggle with to keep in balance. It's kind of like our resources. We all have resources, whether those are financial or intellectual or the the skills in some sort of work that we do, uh, social skills. We all have resources, And God expects us, this was another thing from a day or two ago from Luther that was just marvelous. God expects us to use all of the resources that he's given to us. But he doesn't want us to trust in them. Which is why Proverbs 3 says, lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, lean not on your own understanding. It doesn't say trust in the Lord with all of your heart and don't use your understanding. You have to use the resources that God has given, but you don't want to be putting your trust in those resources. You want to be putting your trust in God while you use those resources. And it is so easy for us to go one way or the other. Either kind of let go and let God and, you know, don't use our resources Or just think that it's all up to us. But the Bible provides us with such a wonderful balance. Use all of the resources that you have, but while you're using them, make sure you're trusting God. And the same way with glory. There is a human glory that is appropriate. Honor your father and your mother. Those who glorify me, I will glorify. But while we are understanding that, we have to make sure that we keep the perspective of the Bible in place that God is the one who gets the ultimate glory because he will not share that ultimate glory with another. And he said, why do you glorify your sons more than me? He didn't say, I'm upset with you because you're honoring your sons. He said, I am upset because you are honoring your sons more than me. You see, the song of the angels, their song is about God. But the song doesn't end there. It goes on to say, here's my second point, peace to people. Or we could put it another way, it's about you. Notice how it starts on earth. Earth is contrasts with the highest heavens. We see this same focus in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but notice where the focus goes in verse 2. Now the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Or we might think of Psalm 115, 16. The heavens, even the highest heavens, belong to the Lord our God, but the earth He has given to man. Now you see the the angelic song is coming down from the heights of heaven, and now we are on the earth where you and I live. And what's going to happen on earth? Peace. That's the Hebrew word shalom that is in the background here. And shalom, peace, is more than the absence of strife. 
It's more than the absence of turmoil. We use the word peace in the terms of, I wish there were peace in the Middle East. The absence of turmoil out there. But we also say, you know, I just didn't have peace about that decision. The absence of turmoil in here. Now, Hebrew shalom is that, but it is so much more. Hebrew shalom is wholeness. When you have shalom, nothing is broken. Your relationships aren't broken. Your body's not broken. Your finances aren't broken. Your emotions aren't broken. Nothing is broken. Everything is whole. Shalom is what we were created with in the garden. Shalom is what we will experience in heaven. As one scholar has said, this is more than the cessation of strife. And the word is used to indicate the full sum of all the blessings associated with the coming of the Messiah. Peace is thus the same thing as salvation. When, he, when the angels say shalom on earth, peace on earth, they, they say what is God about to accomplish? God is about to accomplish salvation. In the full sense, the, the Christmas carol, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He comes to make absolutely everything whole everything new, so that the day is coming when there will be no weeping, no crying, no mourning, no pain, because the whole first order will be passed away and everything will be brand new, just like God intended in creation and just like God is bringing about in salvation. That is what the angels are singing about. Shalom. Not only are they singing about glory to God, but they are also singing about shalom for you to people on whom his favor rests. Literally, and some of your translations probably say this, we could translate it men. Um, And the word in Greek for men can mean men, you know, male, bunch of male guys. But when it's used in the plural, this word is used for humanity. And that's what's in view here. This shalom is for humanity. And it, it, it literally says, um, humanity of good pleasure. Humanity of good pleasure. Not as in the Christmas carol, goodwill to people. And not as in some older translations, people of goodwill. The angels are not saying that this shalom is for good people. You know those nice people who just are Goodwill, generous, kind, compassionate people. That's not what the text is saying. The good pleasure is God's good pleasure, not our goodwill. It's God's grace. And in light of the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the only way possible this song can still be about us is if there is grace that has been poured out. Where sin has abounded, grace abounds all the more. And the message of Christmas is a message of grace. It's not a message of our goodwill. It's a message of God's grace and God's good pleasure to us. That's what God is doing in redemption. This song is about God. Glory to God in the highest. 
But it's not only about God. It's also about you. On earth, shalom, wholeness, salvation for you by the grace of God that is yours in Christ. Now let me quit by saying just two things in case you missed it. It's about God. It's about you. It's ultimately about God. When we go back to the text near the end, when the angels return, I mean, I'm sorry, when the shepherds return, you'll notice that they are glorifying God and praising Him. And when the angel's song is being introduced, the text tells us that the angels were glorifying and praising God by saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. You see, even the shalom, even the the part of the song that is about us is about us ultimately for whose glory? You see, it's about us ultimately for the glory of God. It is about God. It is about you. It is ultimately about the glory of God. And we're going to see that in another way in a moment or two as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But before that, let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by this word, which is truth, We pray that you would now, Holy Spirit, write this word deeply on our hearts and in our minds, that we might live before you, understanding who you are as a glorious God in creation and redemption, and understanding who we are as the recipients of such a great salvation. Praying in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's respond by standing and singing. Just the first...